Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you don't know your spouse's super balance, you've got a task within the next 24 hours. In fact, if you don't know your own super balance, you've got a task within the next 24 hours. I want you to look at both super balances for yourself and your partner and just see if there is a difference. Now, a lot of the time there can be differences if one person has been self-employed for a long time and we know it's not mandated by law if you're a sole trader to put money into superannuation or there could be a lower income earning spouse whose super balance is lower because they earn less money. Or that spouse has taken time out of the workforce to be with kids, to care for kids, to make kids, all that stuff. But uh, we're going to talk about that today and a lot more stuff. If you're a professional, uh, there's some good news about lenders, mortgage insurance waivers that we're going to go over. But we can't do our Tuesday show without the help from Sharesies. Get the most for investing regularly with three new monthly pricing plans on the Sharesies app. You can pay as you go or set up a $5, 10 or $20 monthly plan. Each plan includes coverage for buy and sell orders, auto-invest orders, roundups, and more, so you can invest how you like. Head to the Sharesies website and use the monthly fees calculator to figure out which pricing option might be best for you. It's a sidebar, everyone. I've used that. It's a really cool thing. So if you've got lots of uh, monthly buys, DCAs, and all that stuff, uh, check out how much you could save with one of their monthly plans. Anyway, you can get $10 added to your account ready to invest when you sign up to the Sharesies app using the exclusive promo code MMM. All investing involves risks. T's and C's and fees apply. My name's Len James. I've got a guest host today. You're listening to my Millennial Money. Let's get into it. So my guest today is Jessica Brady. Jess, uh, she's known me and I've known her for many years. We may have gone to the same high school at some point in time. She's a qualified and licensed financial advisor. She's got a lot to say about a lot of things. Jess Brady, welcome to My Millennial Money. Thank you, Glenn. And we did go to the same school, but we only worked that out way later because you're older than me. That's right. And you changed schools and went to the cool school. Correct. Mm. Mm. Yes. But uh, look, we'll um, we'll get into some questions today. Um, we'll share a bit what Jess is doing later in the podcast, but it's, uh, it's really exciting. I can't wait to share that stuff with you all. But just following my monologue kind of entry to the podcast, um, that was kind of provoked by a question that Ben put in the Facebook group, My Millennial Money. Ben said, a few questions on super. I'm lucky enough to max out my contributions each year. My wife works two days part-time and she's the primary carer of our kids. I've been trying to get my head around two things, the government co-contribution and the way I read it, my wife can put an extra $1,000 in and the government will give her 
$500. Then I can also look at kicking in $3,000 and then he or I can claim a $500 tax offset. At the moment, her gross income is just over $30,000, which is less than the 37K threshold. Also, does it matter if these amounts come out of the same bank account? We just have the one joint cash hub and several savings accounts. I'm thinking we'll put an extra 4K per year and just say 1K is from her and 3K is from me. Would love to hear your thoughts. So Jess, we kind of did a bit of a tech check earlier and you were like, I've got one or two things to say about this. Uh, So (laughs) what do you take from Ben's comments there? Mm. I mean, Ben's obviously done his research. Well done, Ben. What I immediately thought of when I read this question was what we're talking about here is tax. And what I think we're missing is actually stepping way, way back. And so, yes, there are definitely things that you can do because of the partner's income level and because of where you're at in terms of adding additional money in and getting the co-contribution component. But I want to sort of start by saying let's use the mechanisms that exist, but tax shouldn't be the only consideration. And so with one in four women retiring today in Australia with no super, I think we need to have a bigger conversation here about splitting super more broadly when you have a partner that stays at home. Because, you know, I am female, I work a lot and have given a lot of advice to women. And we know for all the reasons that you said in the intro There are lots of women who take time out of the workforce to care for kids, to have kids, et cetera, and it leaves them in poverty in later years. And so whilst we're talking about putting in 4K, I think what we should be talking about is, is that going to be enough? And should we be doing something different? And should we be splitting the contributions that he's getting from super? Because obviously it looks like as a family, they've decided that they want to have one person stay at home and one person work also did a couple of numbers on this because it's a pretty Mm. terrifying outcome. I I will say I actually was chatting with Ben in the Facebook group and I think they do have some noble intentions and I do understand what you're saying. It's like, oh, how can I save tax Mm. uh, or get a free $500? Mm. We know that the reason that the government put these things in place was to at least have people thinking about putting more money into super, right? Mm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, Ben's intentions was good. And then I went on a text-based rant about, you know, (laughs) you need to try and equalise the super and all that stuff. Uh, And we can get into super splitting in in greater details. But what have you got there in terms of a bit of a a number crunch case study thing that you looked at? Here's my assumptions. Let's assume the partner's 34-year-old female with a current super balance of 42,000. I've picked that because that is the average super balance for a female at that age group. If you only added... 4,000 in, which is Ben's question, plus the amount that I presume she's going to get from working the 30K. At retirement age, that partner who's not working is going to have about $429,000 in super, assuming an average return, I think of about 7% and some average assumptions on fees. It looks like he's capping out his contributions anyway. So let's say they super split and did uh, half of his into her super, it takes it from 429000 to 963000 at age 67. It is an enormous difference. And remember that women live longer and so we mm. need our retirement balance to go further. And so, yes, to your point, I love that it's a noble quest to look into it and to figure out how you can use the tax advantages that exist. 
But I also think that there's an opportunity to go a bit further and consider how do you make sure that both people's super balances are big, especially if this um, working person is going to potentially hit the super cap anyway. It's a good way to get across both. So just a you know, direct answer to Ben's question. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter where the money, quote unquote, comes from. Um, you might have a, a rich uncle or aunt who's like, mm. hey, I want to give $1,000 for your wife's super. As long as that money lands in her super account as a non-concessional after-tax contribution. So that means the money goes in and... And Jess, you're new to this podcast. When I explain stuff, I'm obviously explaining it to the audience, uh, not you. Mm-hmm. You can explain it to me if you like. Love being <laughs> mansplained too. Off you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> at the risk of being uh, a mansplainer. Uh, so, yeah, so as long as the money goes in as a post-tax contribution, $1,000, uh, when the tax return is done, the government will say he's $500 co-contribution, $1,500 has gone in. And then with the um, 3K contribution, you'll need to call your super fund or look online or look at a statement, Ben, and they will have um, maybe even a BPAY or some way that you need to tell them when that $3,000 goes into your wife's um, super account that it lands in there as a spouse contribution. So that's really important. It doesn't matter what bank account it comes from. It needs to be Uh, flagged as a spouse contribution. And then uh, when you do your tax return, you can just flag that I need that $500 offset. So Jess, I also just crunched some numbers quickly, not as um, (laughs) detailed as yours. So if we have a current superannuation cap of Mm $27,500, we can do that super splitting uh, strategy that you touched on. And everyone who's got a copy of my book, I want you to pick it back up and go to page 299 and we talk about uh, these two or the three ways that we can um, grow other low-income spouses or low-account balance spouse supers. Um, So you can contribute 85% of your super into your spouse's super. And I reckon, Jess, this is the best-kept secret ever. Mm. Yeah, I, I would go out on a limb to say, and I'll, I'll be careful on the limbs that I go out on, <laughs> if a partner in this type of relationship didn't want to do a super split, mm-hmm. even for a period of time to equalise the super balance, may have bigger problems. Yeah. I'm just, I'm touching... Carefully, and and the reason I say that, and I'll get to my numbers, is there's no out of pocket, week on week, month on month, cash flow impact to the family. Mm-hmm. So twenty seven and a half goes in, four thousand one hundred twenty five, which is fifteen percent, gets sent to the ATO automatically by the super fund. So that means each year Ben has the option to split twenty three thousand three hundred seventy five dollars. Now, what if, call me wild, Ben just went, we're just going to do $11,000 a year until we get the supers 
equalized, he might decide, let's do 20,000. Let's get our super equalized. Because I reckon as well, just part of this um, strategy, why this is actually could be seen as an opportunity for some households is to start doing it because when these super caps come in and we're taxing balances over $3 million, it's going to work in your favor if your account has $2 million and the other one has one and a half or 1.8. Um, as a household unit, uh, we could save money year on year anyway. Totally. So you said it's the best kept secret. I feel like it's the worst kept secret because for the people that I explain this to, people are like, oh, can you even do that? And I'm like, yes, and you must. If you're going to take time out of the workforce as a couple, if one of you has decided or you've decided as a family that one of you is going to take an indefinite period uh, out of the workforce, paid work, I should say, you're definitely working. Uh, oh, totally. It should be, in my mind, a mandatory that you have this conversation, that you know that it's available. And the reason that m- most older women end up in poverty is often because they didn't work and they didn't have superannuation being accumulated for them. And of course, there's a lot of other reasons, but I just think we have to normalise having conversations about this. And you're right, like it's a red flag. If your partner's like, yeah, nah, I would be like, I'm going back to work then, thanks. <laughs> yeah, and that's like, and it's, it's so fascinating, everyone. Like in a couple of weeks, I think in September, there's an episode going up about divorce and mm. I literally recorded it an hour ago. So I'm just like in this red flag zone right now. And, uh, you know, here at My Millennial Money, like, we, as in me, as in the brand, as in the leadership, we 100% believe and know as fact that if you're a no or low income earning spouse, whatever male or female, it actually doesn't matter, mm. the value that you provide looking after the family and the household is so wild because the other person couldn't go and get the big bucks without your sacrifice, without doing quote unquote paid work in the workforce. Like it's literally an ecosystem. So that's why at the top of the episode, I was like, what you need to do as an experiment, you need to look at your super balance and your spouse's super balance, both sit down together and go, oh, one's got a hundred, one's got 60, 40, whatever. We now know that we can do super splitting. We heard it on the podcast. Mm. If you don't decide to actively change that going forward, there's a possible problem because you now know. Because I'm, I'm of the things like if you don't do it because you didn't know it was an option, mm. well, I'll have some grace there, obviously. But if you actually know that this is possible, I think, yeah, it's a no-brainer, absolute no-brainer. A million percent. And I also think like if you've got friends that are going on parental leave or starting to consider having kids, tell them about this because so many people don't know about it. They don't realise that if they're not getting paid super whilst they're on parental leave, that their partner can split it. You might get them out of a really sticky situation later in life. And as you say, like we'd love to pretend that all relationships are rosy and rainbow full, but they're not. The stats aren't telling us that. And so I think we have to be pragmatic and realistic. And if you're not working to bring in an income, you must make sure that your working partner, in my opinion, is splitting their super because otherwise you are putting yourself in an enormous amount of risk, which you just don't have to. 
Mm. And the facts are, it's like that income that he's generated for the household, mm-hmm. because you're a non-working spouse at the moment, I don't know, it's just a no-brainer. Just split the super. <laughs> like, done. Yeah. yeah. And well- the reality is, um, if you're married, you're shacked up together and all that stuff, well... If you separate, there's a very high chance, not always because, you know, I shouldn't have answered this question after the divorce recording, but whatever. Um, (laughs) It's a marital asset, uh, but it just allows that little bit extra protection um, for the lower income earner's spouse along the way. That's all I'll say. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but it's a great question. Page 200 and... Uh, 99 of the book, Sort Money Out and Get Invested. A lot of detail there if you want it. ATO has free website if you don't want my sassy commentary uh, at the same time. But, uh, look, it's a great discussion and I probably need to talk about it more, this whole super splitting thing. So there you have it. All right, shall we look at the next question? Let's. Do you want to read that one from Erin? Yes, I do want to read that one from Erin. I was wondering if there are any drawbacks to investing internationally in shares as opposed to buying Australian shares. Mm. Good question, Erin. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this podcast for a while now, right? And you're probably the same. Like the more you kind of do a profession or trade or whatever, the more like you're you maybe swing back around and it's like, have I overcooked a few things or um, <laughs> the more I don't know perhaps. But I'm thinking like before we even get to Aaron's question, I think I told someone the other day with a general advice warning, obviously, because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I do that. Uh, they wanted to get started in investing. And I, honestly, in the best way to learn would even just be a non-diversified top 200 or 300 Australian equities index. And rather than just telling them, hey, go and get Vanguard diversified high growth and get on with your life, I'd rather than just like, yep, I invest 100%, 200, top 200, top 300 Aussie shares, learning about that as things develop. And this could be where Erin's at. She's at a beginner part two, perhaps. She has got Australian shares because she's been involved. And now she's saying, hmm, what are the drawbacks if I invest in international shares? Do you have any like vibey comments on a bit of a, a strategy to ratchet up one's learning or education with practical investing? Mm, start. Yeah. And if you're terrified, start with a small amount and just learn. You know, it's the riding the bike analogy, right? You can watch as many YouTube tutorials, you can read all the books, you can learn everything about what it is to know about bikes and how to ride them. Is it helpful? Maybe, but the best thing to do is just get on the bike and have a go. And will you fall off or fumble or have some scraped knees? Yeah, yeah, you're going to, Mm. and you're going to get better. And I think investing is exactly the same. You know, there is a lot to get your head around. And if you're going to do it to make sure that you can achieve financial freedom, which is what I'm all about, then yeah, there's lots to think through. But if you're the kind of person that wants to know everything before you start, you're never going to start. And so I would say, you know, grab some money that you're not worried about losing. Start with $5 if that's all you can commit to. You don't need to start with anything. Like sharesies will give you $10. Yeah. (laughs) As long as you use it as an opportunity to be curious and to lean in, I think it's an amazing way to start. And of course, once you're starting and then you you wake up one day and maybe it's 
gone down and it's not $10 anymore, then the curiosity sits in hopefully and it's like, cool, what's happened here? How did this happen? Or you wake up and it's $12 and you're like, yes, this is cool. I can now see it starting to work. So I think when it comes to investing, there's always so many questions, which I think are valid and very important. And definitely if you are trying to build financial freedom, all should be considered. But the very first bestest thing to do is just to start. And so mm. coming back to Erin's question, uh, you know, this is a question that I have had a lot over the years. I think it's important for us to, for us to remember um, we're tiny. Australia's economy is tiny when you look at the whole world. I think we're something like 1.9 or just maybe 2% of the global share market. And so if you're only going invest, to invest in Australia, you're kind of missing out on so much of the world that is investment markets outside of our shores. So Yeah, yeah perspective was, matters. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, I guess I would try to understand, like, what are you worried about? What's the concern that you have? And if it's someone that wants to be fully across all of the investments that they are invested in, and you don't have a lot of time and resources to get across all the different countries and their um companies. I get that. But I also know to your point, a lot of people aren't doing that anymore. They're picking indexes or ETFs that are diversified. And so, yeah, maybe you do start with an Aussie portfolio and then build up over time. But I would sort of say, what's the fear? Get into the fear. What's what's worrying you about investing outside of Australia? And what do you need to learn about to give you the confidence to go further afield? Because if you look at so many of the very big companies that we all use every day, chances mm. are they're not on the Aussie stock market. And are you okay with not being invested in them if you think that they're actually going to perform well over the long term? I've personally, in my own portfolio, have a higher weighting to global equities than Australia. Um, and I, I kind of resolved like you're know, like, oh, like there's more people in Texas than in Australia. <laughs> um, so there's that. And like, we are just so small. Uh, and what you could do, Aaron, as a bit of a research exercise, we will assume that you are not buying individual stocks. Because if Aaron was like, I own CBA, JB Hi-Fi, uh, Qantas, should I buy international shares? I probably want Aaron to step back and be like, okay, we need to really drill down on this diversification thing and single stock risk and all that stuff. But we'll assume that, you know, she's got like a, IOZ, which is a, um, uh, what is it? The BlackRock top 200, S&P, ASX 200, whatever that is. And as a research thing, Aaron, if you just Google like uh, Global X ETF Australia, what that will provide, it will give you some options of ETFs that invest in companies all around the world uh, and they don't invest in Australia. So you can plug that into your portfolio. Another option would be to research uh, investment options like there's a, a ticker called IVV, which is the S&P 500. And I've personally taken a view that I'm probably okay with IVV as opposed to a whole world X Australia or X US because most of the companies, big companies around the world are listed on the uh, New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ. <laughs> like, I just want simple. Uh, but I think it is that just step by step um, because realistically, if you buy Tesla, for example, it's listed in the States, 
you're going to get exposure to European markets because they sell Teslas there. So it's kind of an indirect way to do that. Likewise, Microsoft, Apple, all that stuff. It's They're true global companies. Uh, and there's probably portfolio managers that are listening to me right now screaming. Mm-hmm. But you just got to do what you're comfortable with as long as you understand. Yeah. And I think if you're going to go down the path of like building different components of your investment portfolio, understanding you know, what it all equates to from an asset class perspective and a diversification perspective is important. And if you don't have the interest or time to do so, then perhaps it's about finding an investment product that is diversified. And within the one, I don't know, ETF or whatever it is that you're investing in, you get some exposure to Aussie stocks and you get, you know, the international component, potentially even including emerging markets, et cetera. So know that you don't have to build them piecemeal if you don't want to. It's obviously an option that Glenn's said, and you totally can. But you also can find diversified ones where they're already done for you. And that often includes some info about where from a country or jurisdiction perspective the money's going. And I always think that's interesting to show people as well. Mm. And if you really drill down like to her question, the drawbacks of investing internationally, yeah, it kind of, you know, some simple kind of textbook risks of the currency risk, if there is some currency fluctuations there and it's uh, not a hedged portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be some legislation risk, like if you're like, oh, I'm just investing in shares in China. They might wake up one day and go, yeah, we're taking over that company and shutting it down. Um, there could be some liquidity risks uh, mm-hmm. with different companies around the world. Um, there could be some sovereign risks, if you like. I'm going to invest into Greek bonds and mm-hmm. there's a GFC tomorrow. And then so... Yeah, it's choose your risk adventure, but we know diversification is key. Eggs and baskets and all that still applies. And also franking credits is something that we should talk about. So, you know, obviously if you're doing that international shares or equities, you won't get franking credits. So I think that's probably a drawback that needs to be understood as well. Yeah, and Australia is very unique because if you're buying shares in Australia, you're buying a usually a, a big black hole or a bank or a health company like CSL or a lab. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We are very concentrated here. And that's why we also have to get off the island. Mm. And there was a question similarly, I think it was in this thread or another thread. Someone's like, oh, where do I start? And someone's like, oh, just buy the um, NASDAQ top 100. I'm like, but that also has risk because it's top 100 just tech. Mm. So Mm. we need diversification across asset classes, across sectors, across countries, because when one's going well, others might not be, and you need that kind of correlating um, effect with your portfolio. Agree. All right, thanks, Aaron. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back. We're talking the community segment of the week where we ask you in the Facebook group random questions and we read out your name and all your wacky ideas. We can't do this segment without the help of Sky Wealth. Make sure you get your income insurance sorted. Please, you've got an income, you need to protect it. If you don't need to protect it, you don't need it. If you don't need it, why are you working? Go and chill. Uh, sky.com.au forward slash MMM, complimentary discussion. They can show you how the process works. All right, we asked the Facebook group, have you ever made a significant lifestyle change to improve your financial situation? Do you want to read the first one? Yeah, there's some good answers in here. Mm. Uh, James says, quit drinking. I've been able to put an extra 150 bucks a fortnight or so that would have been spent at the pub towards my house deposit. Has been a bit of an adjustment going out uh, since. My friends still drink, but four months in, I think it will be a permanent change. That's a lot of money, James. Well done. Mm, Trisha. When I became a single mum, I stopped buying meat for myself as it was so expensive and just bought enough for my three children. 20 years later, I still don't eat red meat. I own my own home and have 100K in savings. That's awesome. Mm. I yeah. Actually, I'm doing a, a, an episode at the moment uh, about cost of living that I'm going to just literally rant on a podcast myself for two hours. And that's going to probably be sound like hell for some people, but some of you freaks like my little rants. And I think I'm going to call the topic like, um, it's not the cost of living, it's the cost of breathing. Am I right? That uh, one of my things was like, consider yeah. cutting down on red meat. Mm. Um, so anyway, what does Emily have to say? Next one. Yes, Emily. So we moved from Sydney to Outback WA last year. Our, ki- our young kids were so upset and crying every day because they wanted to be with mum and dad, but they were in daycare and before and after school care from 6am to about 5.30, 6pm each day. It was breaking our hearts. Hubby was offered a good paying job, so he packed up and moved. Everyone's mental health is so much better and we have more money here too. It was a big gamble, but so far has paid off. Oh, and we were able to purchase a house here for a deposit in Sydney. I work school hours here and make more than I did full-time in Sydney. Huge lifestyle change, but worth it for us. Yeah, I would say that fits under the category a significant lifestyle change to improve a financial situation. (laughs) But not only a financial situation, it looks like it's improved yeah. almost. Lifestyle. Yeah, mm. everything. Amazing. But this is the whole thing, right? Like in someone's life, moving across the country mm. is significant. Mm. But in someone else's life, um, stop right, buying red meat is significant because everyone's situation is different and everyone's opinion about relativity and all that stuff is different anyway. Mm, agree. There I go again, talking about nothing. Uh, April said, yes, I decided to apply for a job which I thought was out of reach and she got it. Mm-hmm. I was considered 
a long-term social security recipient. This is crazy, everyone. Strap in mm. until 2020. Now I earn 93K in paid employment. How amazing is April? I need to interview April on Dude. the podcast. April, what up? Message us. I think the key point there is that April decided to go for a job that she didn't think there was any chance of her getting. And to just throw your hat in the ring and be like, what have I got to lose here is so important and it's so underdone. And look, she's gone from social security until 2020 to nearly a hundred thousand dollar income. I wish we all had the confidence of April. I need to channel that confidence next time I'm feeling scared about something. Yeah. So April, just message our um, team at sortyourmoneyout.com, slide into our Insta DM or whatever and say, Glenn said on episode 636 that he would like to hear my story and we might organize an interview with you and uh, Sarah and you can just share because I, I actually do want to hear that Same. Um, story. Um, Valeska. Ooh. Stopped dyeing my hair blonde. Well, Now, you might not think that that is a big deal because I don't dye my hair. I stopped dyeing my hair years ago. But actually, do you know how much it costs in, well, I live in Sydney, in Sydney to get your hair dyed? It's wild. I, look, there was a salon, a hair salon on Crown Street in Surrey Hills. It's really close to where I live. Yeah, what's it called? There's millions. It's like the capital, the epicentre of hair salons. A girl I dated once, I knew she used to like to go there. I picked up a gift voucher from that salon for you once. That's how we've known each other, everyone. I did. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Because I I drove past it the other day and I was saying, like, I went in there and I'm like, how much does someone so usually spend? (laughs) And they were like, oh, $300 or something. I'm like, all right, I'm committed. (laughs) And then I picked up the voucher for you and got it off so that you were the best yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's expensive. So that would have mm. had a big, because the problem with hair is it grows back. So mm. you can't just do it once and then, anyway, you already know that. But yes, it's actually a, a big, probably a big, big saving. All right. Well, we'll bounce out of the community segment of the week and we'll get on to some housekeeping and we'll see where we go. Thanks guys for rolling the funky music. All right, some housekeeping this week. Um, Tuesday, the 12th of September at 7 p.m., Rach Kroon and Joe Carroll from Sphere Home Loans, which, you know, we were talking about just before, they're running a webinar on investment lending. I know a lot of you freaks and geeks have investment properties. I know some of you want to buy an investment property. I know you want to maybe rent vest. So, and this is a big thing, isn't it? Just like, I want to build my future, but I can't buy a house where I live. Mm -hmm. Um, How to use equity in your home to invest, um, structuring your loan, tips to start your property investing journey. Uh, So look, there's a link in the show notes to register for that webinar Tuesday, the 12th of September. Yeah, next Tuesday night, if you're hearing this as it goes up on the on the day next Tuesday night. And then the other bit of housekeeping, I wanted, one of the reasons I got Jess on, because I wanted to talk about her 10-week um, financial literacy program called The Greenhouse. Uh, so Jess, talk to us about this and who might it be for? Mm. So I was giving one-on-one financial advice 
for a long time to people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. I co-founded a financial advice business. And you know what I figured out, Glenn? A, lots of people couldn't afford advice and I had to turn them away because they weren't at the point yet where they could, you know, really justify the amount that it cost to get advice. But also a lot of the time it was that they wanted confidence and education and they just needed foundations really and hand-holding. And so I was like, why don't I build an online money program where I teach people all of the things that I used to do in a one-on-one sense, but make it scalable and make it more affordable and make it community-minded. So that's uh, what the greenhouse is. It's an intentional space where people come and learn about all the money stuff and all the tools and templates and checklists and worksheets. And then I think this is super important. Every week I do a live call to cover the topic the week before, because I think it's hard when you're alone trying to figure stuff out. And so I sort of thought having 10 hours with a financial advisor in a community sense where people can throw in their questions or their ideas or their failures as well. I love when our community does that. It's beautiful and it's exciting. And I think this is the only money program that exists, like full money program. So we talk about investing in super and Mm. all the things that's done by a fully licensed financial advisor in Australia. Yeah, well, there you go. So like 10 weeks, I'm looking at some of the um, the modules. Uh, week one, a bit of an intro and I'll probably think you would uh, cap and touch on a heap of stuff that people should expect and mm. that they need to maybe prepare for Yeah, uh, and then might meet other people in the chat or whatever. Uh, week two, understanding your money memoir, goals and values and all this stuff is foundational to know what you're doing, who you are. Week four, cash flow. Week five, uh, debt and talking about debt. Mm. Week six and seven, so that's like investing. So that's a good couple of weeks there. Week eight, super. Week nine, property. Week 10, uh, risks and estate planning. So it is, I would probably say as well, if you are interested in pressing reset on your money or it's like, I'm in a rut, something has to change, um, sign up. There's live sessions with Jess and, you know, the group. Uh, there's videos that you can watch. Uh, there's weekly worksheets and things. So the thing is, everyone, if you are listening to this when it comes out, talk to us about when enrollment ends because we're almost out of time before you start because it's not an evergreen thing like any of the stuff that I do. Jess really does these bespoke every um, you know, a few times a year for 10 weeks. So. Yeah, and this is the last intake for 2023. And the reason right. is because I want everyone to sort of be up to the same spot at the same time so that you can learn together because I think there's so much shame and stigma around money. It's so nice to have everyone having watched the same week's worth of content to get together and be like, how are you tackling this? Or I didn't understand this bit or whatever it is, or I'm going to trial this. So yeah, doors close for the last intake for the greenhouse for 2023 at midnight on the 11th, Monday, the 11th of September. Right. So that's next um, next Monday night. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go, everyone. We'll put a link in the show notes. How much is it? It's just over 90 bucks a week. So it's 897 for the full 10-week program. Yeah, sweet. And I always say this, everything that we talk about on this podcast, not everything is for everyone. So oh. don't get your... Knickers in a knot or your panties in a pickle or whatever. Um. <laughs> Full of great lines, yeah. We need a, like a book of just your one-liners from yeah, this podcast, I gosh. feel. Um, so, yeah, you know, if you're killing it with your money, you've got some savings, you want to press reset, you want to dive in and learn more about money, 1000 bucks, 
you'll get so much value out of this. I just know it. And you just never know what would happen following that. Chris has a question. Question about LMI, please. Got our mortgage early 2020 with NAB via broker. LMI was added to the loan amount. That's the lender's mortgage insurance, everyone. Mm. I'm an oral health therapist, dental hygienist and dental therapist, a dental practitioner registered with APRA. I, in an OHT Facebook group, would that be like oral health therapist Facebook group? Mm. There were a few comments about how NAB and some other lenders waives LMIs for OHTs. Only when you ask, of course, and when we slash our broker didn't. I mean, there's a whole thing there. We'll get to that. Mm. I called NAB, of course, but has anyone had success in removing the LMI once they found out that it could have been waived? So what we're going to do, I'll give you two seconds to chew on that one, Jess. Mm. I'm going to make some comments and read a list of things. I called Rach from Sphere Home Loans, who are one of our preferred mortgage brokers in our world, a couple of things. There's now, I'm going to read a list of different occupations where you have the option and the chance to have a loan with either no LMI or a 90% loan. So I'm going to go through and read the list of um, occupations now, and then we'll swing back and talk about this question because there's just a couple of things I want to unpack there. And finally, before I do, there's probably no chance of getting the LMI removed once the loan's been mm. put in the oven and pressed bake. Mm. However, if there has been some faults, maybe there needs to be a, a refund, but we'll get to that. Okay, so the list here, if you fit into one of these categories and you're going for a loan, number one, the mortgage broker should bloody know what day it is. And number two, uh, if they don't and you are a midwife, you need to say, hey, I'm a midwife. How come you're giving me a quote for LMI? So... So the first category is medical. So that's medical doctor, physician, specialist, GP, consultant, surgeon, anaesthetist, radiologist. Uh, it's not a radiographer, just the radiologist, uh, an optometrist, pathologist, podiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist, physiotherapist, clinical pharmacologist, dentist, dental practitioners, orthodontist, midwife, occupational therapist. Now, this is a new one that... Uh, a couple of lenders are now doing, which is so awesome, if you're a registered nurse. Mm. I just think that's, yeah, so that's new. Uh, sonographer, speech pathologist. If we go down to, um, these aren't in any type of order, white collar professionals, engineer, pharmacist, veterinarians, accountant, actuary, auditor, CFOs, finance director, financial planner, finance manager, financial controller, uh, some public service peeps, police officers, firefighters, paramedics. This is a cool one. I text my friend before. I'm like, hey, Beck, if you're a high school teacher um, or a primary school teacher, you've got some good things there. Uh, sporting professionals, professional sport coaches and entertainment professionals. And I said, oh, would I be included in that? She's like, yeah, we'll get you across the line. And oh, and just reading this, I pulled up an email because I emailed Rachel from Sphere just before we press record and she just replied, uh, some other professionals, geologist, mine surveyor, chiropractors, osteopath, industry qualified and certified professionals in the IT industry. So you might be like a certified red hat or I don't know, I'm probably out of date. And then last and certainly least, um, lawyers. <laughs> now, now. 
Um, <laughs> I just love poking people. Uh, lawyers, solicitors, barristers and judges. Um, now, I emailed Rach and I said, hey, if there was a husband who's a warehouse hand and the wife is a school teacher, can they get 10% deposit with no LMI? If they were buying jointly, would this be a non-bank lender, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I said, what about a research doctor or like a PhD? And she's just written back with teachers that isn't as flexible as some of the, some of the other ones, uh, but they do both qualify, but there could be a lender that has a higher rate. Uh, and she said, generally, it's more of a short-term solution to get them in the home. And then later on down the track, as the equity builds up, they will refinance them out. So mm. like everything, like there are always options. And if you've got a good broker, they can provide a strategy. And on the um, uh, PhD and research doctor, I said, would that be on a list too? And she said, not technically, which is on, not her problem, but it's wild that they wouldn't considering you've got a friggin, I won't mention other um, professionals on there. <laughs> like, well, people like me, like if I can get it, not a PhD, but she said, um, she's had uh, research scientists approved as exceptions. So all that to say, you got to have a mortgage broker who is on top of the current pulse with the world, not someone who's in the back street of some alley who doesn't go to any conferences, doesn't meet with other banks and lenders. And you've just got to you know, do all that. So if you're on that list, uh, you will have some type of leg up when it comes to lending. I have a question on that if I can. Mm. That list... Is it fair to say that that's only for, like every bank would have a slightly different occupation list? Yes, that's right. This is more of a motherhood list mm, um, okay. that there would be a lender. So, so as an example, uh, CFO, Chief Financial Officer, it might be with a non-bank lender mm. where ANZ or the top four won't do that. So, yeah, it's, it is just a bit more of a motherhood list. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know financial planners were on there. My bank certainly didn't offer that. Ah, uh, mm. so interesting. Well, yes. I know, time. entertainment professional. I'm going to lean on that. I'm a professional entertainer. I entertain you people always. You've entertained me for years and years, Glenn, so I agree. I know. I agree. I know. <laughs> so, okay, so back to this question from Chris, because my comments were initially like, oh, maybe your occupation wasn't on the list at the time, you know. That's what but, I wondered. Uh, but... Uh, Apparently it was um, because I tagged Sphere Home Loans in the Facebook group and Rachel basically said like, as a business, if we drop the ball, we will fix it if it's our fault, which is really good. Yeah. Mm. So this would basically mean that when this person, when Chris went to go and get a loan, the broker that they used didn't put two and two together that that occupation meant that they could have that and therefore they didn't apply for it when they were doing the, the loan or they didn't talk to the lender about it or whatever. And subsequently, Chris has had to pay LMI because it, and not the right steps were taken from the broker. Yes, that's what we're reading it. Now, I'm not here to shat can brokers or people because I am pro-broker, I'm pro-professional help. Same. But sometimes uh, life happens and things fall through the cracks and I'll share a story where I've had uh, something recently happen. But what might have been the case as well, because I would have thought NAB would have picked it up but mm -hmm. maybe NAB weren't one of the lenders that did OHTs and it was another lender at the time. So this is why like, we need people that are in the trenches. So I don't know, like what I would probably suggest is Chris writes to the broker 
mm. without malice, without accusations and mm. all that because always you've got to not just go for the throat on the first instance because we've got to seek first to understand. Okay. So it could be, hey, just so I saw this. Uh, could you tell me why this wasn't the case back in 19 Dickity 2 when, you know, early 2020 when you did the loan for me? And just leave it there. And then what you'd probably do, depending on their response, if they said, well, at the time you didn't tell us clearly or at the time this, like just see what they come. Or they might say, hey, yep, you're right, our bad, whoops. Mm. So generally I think always, and I had a friend call me the other day um, who was dealing with a professional and he's like, oh, they stuffed up, you know, no fault of ours and we missed out on this. And I'm like, look... At the end of the day, like when I was a professional, I had professional indemnity insurance. I had checks and balances. Um, sometimes things don't always go to plan. And the difference is, I believe, with that professional is the response. Mm. If they put their back up trying to get out of it and you've talked to another mortgage broker just as a – and please, Chris, reach out to um, – if you do want Rach, I'm sure she will just – do an autopsy for you, you know, off the regular to say, look, yeah, I think that broker may have been in error. What I would probably do is if they put their back up and you're not getting a resolution, look at their credit guide and follow the complaints process. That's mm -hmm. the first thing. And same in financial advice world, look at the financial services guide mm. and there is a complaints process. And it's really important that you follow that um, because then it, what generally happens is, I don't actually know, but I'll make the assumption, if you send a complaint in, they've got like a time that they need to respond and resolve it. And I know with, um, I was going to say us as financial advisors, but you as a financial advisor and <laughs> me as a uh, hobo. Um, hobo. Well, whatever. Um, and me as a podcaster, generally if there was a complaint, your license would step in mm. and because they're providing your license and they kind of carry it. Yeah. And we've got a register and there's a whole there's a whole process and it's really importantly documented and yeah. all the things. So all that to say, there's probably no way it's quote unquote NAB's problem. And NAB aren't they're not gonna like, well, no, it was never our policy to um to waive the LMI, but ANZ or CBA down the road would have. Um but yeah, you've chosen us for a reason. Mm. And as well this is where it gets complex. Got our mortgage, I'm assuming there's a partner. What if the partner's occupation viable role didn't suit the lender that gave the LMI waiver, but it was on balance a better deal and could get more money from the lender down the road if we paid LMI? So that's where there's complexities, right? Mm. And we just, we just don't know. And mm. there's three sides to every story. So, mm. so we're just assuming that it was a total drop the ball by a well-intending professional. Follow the complaints process. If you don't get a resolution, and a resolution would mean they go, yep, it was our fault. We're going to refund the money with interest. If you don't get a resolution, make a judgment call. Um, and this is the, the crazy thing, right? Like to go and get third-party legal advice, it might cost six or seven grand. And if the LMI waived was... 12 grand, it, is it one of those things, no, nah, I'm doing this for the principle of it? Mm. Or is it like, oh, gosh, we've got to get legal advice. Ugh. I don't know if I can 
carry the emotional toll because I'm busy. That sucks. I'm dropping and I'm moving on. So that's the wild part, isn't it? Yep. And you've got to be in for an emotional roller coaster having done it, um, not for this particular thing. Like I underestimated the emotional toll it would take on me to resolve something completely different. But yeah, I think that that's a really important point. And also, I think it is important because you made that comment about LMI plus interest. I think that's a good point and that's what I was going to talk about because typically in my experience, LMI gets added to the loan. And so over the lifetime of the loan, you're paying a lot more in interest because you've obviously had to take on a higher amount. Uh, So yeah, if you don't get the resolution that you want, hopefully the broker, as you say, is like, look, made a mistake. Here's the cash plus the interest. Thanks so much. But yeah, hopefully that happens. If it doesn't, you take it further up, make sure that you're advocating for what is fair and reasonable. And don't forget that you've paid extra interest because that wasn't are considered or done or whatever, don't do yourself out of that cash. Generally what happens if you go, look, there's a problem here, you would go to a lawyer, the lawyer would probably just build a bit of a timeline story, write a without prejudice letter to the aggregator or the mortgage broker and say, hey, to save on legal costs, we would like to settle for X amount Mm. and based on this. um, Sounds like I know what I'm talking about. What? Um, And then... (laughs) And then um, they could turn around and say, no, we're not settling. We think we're in the right. Then you'd have to go, all right, well, do we want to take this and actually formally lodge a, um, a statement of claim, aka sue someone? Because, and this is the dance in my experience, when it's quote unquote lower values, the mortgage broker PI excess might be 30 grand, mm. might be 35 grand. So knowing that, it's going to be easy for them to write a check and go, here's 30 grand, sorry, deed of release, sorry, we stuffed up. So yeah, so recently for me, and I'm not going to go into details uh, because it's it's been resolved, I was dealing with uh, a professional um, and I'm not even going to say what type of, you know, we'll just assume it's a dentist, all right? Um, they dropped the ball. They admitted to me that they dropped the ball, and that meant a million dollars to me. So it was like, oh, them just saying it. it. You you just owned it, and they owned it, right? Um, I had to get uh, some third party legal advice because when you are talking about up to significant amounts of money, you need to probably get someone that's not emotionally wrapped up in it and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, It was even funny. I, I called the lawyer one day and I was in a bad mood <laughs> and I'm like, oh, tell him to get stuffed or whatever like that. And he's like, oh, I'm like, you'll be talking about me at a conference one day about clients being emotional, won't you? He's like, yeah, without your name though. And um, <laughs> so they owned it. Um, I kind of knew that there would be some professional indemnity insurance. I still got some legal advice. Mm. That legal advice cost over $6,000. Did it. And this is the thing, it's like, if it is a $15,000 LMI thing with some interest, it's getting to the point where it's like, if it doesn't get resolved and settled, you'll end up paying more money to go to court. And that goes down to, it's really hard to be sued by someone who doesn't care about the money who's after principal, Mm. because it's just not going to stop until they get an outcome. Yeah. So we basically wrote a letter, would like to kind of discuss a settlement And I was well prepared if they didn't want to settle. 
uh, to take it further because I knew that they had a professional indemnity insurance company um, that would actually probably step in and would be suing the PI insurer. Mm. Uh, I took the view as like, right, the settlement, if they don't do it, I'm happy to go to town um, because it wasn't necessarily suing them. It was the PI company and I didn't want to be out of pocket due to someone else's um, dropping the ball. Mm. And yeah, it's we resolved it and they basically offered a settlement amount and we didn't even need to go to court and signed a deed of release and the money was in my account within the fortnight. Amazing. But that's the difference between dealing with people who actually care about their craft, their business reputation, what Mm. they do and wanting me to be actually looked after. Mm, Of course. And we're human, Uh, right? Like no matter how many... Uh, years of uni you've been to, no matter how many stop checks you put in place, all the things, at the end of the day, we are humans and often we're doing the best job that we can and we should have all of those cross checks in place, but it doesn't make it bulletproof. And so that's why you have those insurances so that when you make a mistake, you're like, you know what, we didn't do the right thing here and we're so sorry and we're going to fix it for you. And the problem was like, this was legitimate human error. Mm. And I get that life happens, but if you're carrying on a business and you say you've got to do something and I'm paying you professionally, um, yeah, that's part of rocking up. And that's like also another kind of, <laughs> if I may, um, that's like one of those other things. It's like if you run a business right, you will probably make more money than someone who is an employee if you do it right. Mm-hmm. But it's that risk-reward spectrum, right? you carry more risk owning and operating a business. So the reward will will be bigger, but you just have to be prepared. If there is a little whoopsie, you've got to step up to the plate, own it and fix it and make sure that uh, relationship hopefully stays in touch. Make sure there are insurances too. Yes. All right, let's finish with one last question. Uh, Michael said... If I start investing in the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF, the VDHG, and then in seven to 10 years time, decide I want to adjust my risk and change to the balanced ETF, VDBA, do I have to sell the Vanguard VDHG uh, stocks or units? And will this trigger tax events or can you transfer? That's a mouthful. So let's talk maybe conceptually. Mm. I mean- Sure. If you sell those units and you buy other units in the lower ETF, it's a tax event. Mm. There's no internal in-species transfers between units of ETF. So there will be a tax event. So Michael, you need to now look at the strategy of how we're managing a change. But I guess, how would you position this, Jess, in terms of in seven to 10 years, if he wants to adjust his risk profile, so we'll, we'll say Michael, I don't know, we'll just age him for a minute. We'll say he's 50 in 10 years. He's thinking I'll be 60 and I want to stop working so I, don't, I won't have as much time to recover. Like how would you frame this? Mm. I think risk always needs to come back to the goal. And I believe in goals-based risk profiling. And as you get closer and closer to achieving that goal, you know, Michael's doing the right thing. He's thinking about, cool, as I get closer to achieving my goal, am I now taking too much risk and do I need to pull back on the amount of assets that I have that are growth weighted. And so I think everyone needs to remember that, you know, 
But I also think it depends what your goal is. Like if you're like, cool, now I'm 60, now I need to take less risk. Well, maybe that's true, but maybe you're also going to live a really long time based on life expectancy, which I think currently in Australia is like 84 um, Mm. for all of us. So God knows how long we're going to be living by then. But I also think that you can be strategic and clever about, well, do I need to sell the holdings or do I just change tact in terms of where new monies go so that over time it ends up being more of a balanced overall portfolio rather than selling down and having that tax consequence that you were talking about. So I think there's some different things to think through there, don't you? Yeah, and and that could be a situation when you will, because we talk about, you know, when you're building your portfolio, you know, don't have these two funds because for everyone who doesn't know, the Vanguard Diversified High Growth is 90% growth, 10% Mm. defensive. Mm. Uh, Balance is 70% growth, 30% defensive. Generally speaking, if you're just starting investing, you wouldn't buy two of these um, and run them because of the overlap. But it could be a legitimate scenario when you are altering your strategy and risk profile that there is overlap. I thought the balance was 50-50. I'd need to check that. I thought their growth portfolio is 730. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. Sorry. Because I love that it's one of the few balanced portfolios that's actually actually balanced. balanced. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That's right. Yeah, growth. Yeah, there's balanced, there's conservative, balanced, growth and high growth. Yeah. Yeah. So 70% is um, actually, do you want to know a secret? Always. In In my book, my best-selling book. <laughs> I can say that, everyone. It was number one on Amazon every category for like a week. So whatever. I use the example of Vanguard Diversified Growth Fund, VDGR, mm-hmm. on purpose as opposed to VDHG. Because if someone was like, he always uses this example VDHG and when put their money in it without knowing what I was actually trying to explain... I thought if I at least use VDGR and someone just puts money in it because they saw that I wrote it, at least they won't be as exposed to a higher risk investment with less volatility. <laughs> That's how calculated and of a freak that I am. Um, don't just see a ticker code and go and invest in it without knowing what the hell you're doing. And I understand you're sort of paranoia there. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just to protect someone who's like, oh, he talks about VDHG heaps. I'll just use that. And I'm like, I'll just talk about VDGR. So in case someone does it, at least they will be protected a little bit from the volatility of a high growth portfolio. Fascinating secret. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I, I far out, lost my train of thought as usual. But what I would probably, I, yeah, I... This is the whole thing, Jess. Like when you're 60 years old, I hate these life stage portfolios that dial down automatically over time because I get it, it's to protect people. But if you're listening to My Millennial Money, you're learning how portfolios work. You're learning asset allocations. So it actually means if I understand an investment and the volatility, Mm. do I need to decrease my risk profile as I get old. Like my dad and mum, like the best part of 70 at the moment, mm. I was looking at their portfolio the other day um, and I actually talked with their financial advisor. Just, I don't know, I was roped into some discussion about them and with them and all that. And they're still invested in 70-30. And it's fine think, because they yeah. get it. They're like, things change. We get in our income and there are portions of the portfolio that aren't invested, but the lion's share that's 
in market is a 70-30 fund. I think this is where people get confused because I think what people assume happens is like you're super aggressive when you're young, which I hope you are if that's a long-term uh, goal because I think a lot of women particularly take not enough risk. Mm. Uh, but then I think they think what happens is you reach retirement age and you just sell all out of it and you just sit in cash forever. Totally, yeah, yeah. So what I would be thinking of, old Mikey boy, Mikey Mikey, is have some type of strategy, and I'm assuming you're 50. Otherwise, why is your risk profile changing if you're 40? Or, you know, and I, I say for a long time, and I will say this loud and clear, I categorically think if you're under 55, there's no reason to not have at least 70% growth because the money's going to at least be invested in super this is for five years because that's when our first condition of release is met, age 60. But likely people will keep going until 65. So that's 10 years. So we've got time if we understand markets. So yeah, that's a side thing. But what you could do, Mikey boy, is if you're hell bent on just buying VD, BA, or, or here's one we haven't thought of, just stop with the VD HG and buy the growth one. <laughs> totally, because it's a 70-30. Or get to a point where you either go in their conservative fund, which I think is the opposite, which is like 90, mm. 10 the other way, or just put money in cash. Like I, do, I don't understand. I think the strategy needs to be well thought through. And if you've been invested for that long, to sell out, to then rebuy a whole heap of the same stuff that you were already in, mm. uh, do, the, do the math and think through, that through because I'm not sure I'd want to pay tax to rebuy the same asset and reset everything. Yeah. Or we don't sell it. Uh, we turn off dividend reinvestment, uh, which I don't have on on any of my things anyway. What? Um, yeah. Oh. 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 Do we need to... Do we need to go there? Maybe. Okay. Maybe I'll make a note and I'll get you back for another episode and we'll we'll talk about dividend reinvesting and why I don't reinvest my dividends. Um, turn off DRP and then put any new money that you're investing. Here's a wild one, everyone. Straight to super. Dun, dun, dun. Look at your portfolio, not as this is my kitty out of super and that's my super over there. Like a lot of people go, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do when I retire. I've got no super. You own 15 properties. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> your assets are your assets. Mm -hmm. So you've got to look at everything um, as a whole. Super's your investment portfolio. just has a different tax exactly. structure. It's still in your investments. What if you turn your super on or you just put new money into as you said, the conservative option or a cash option. Uh, but we, we answered his question. Yes, you can't do in specie transfer with all that stuff. So, well, we have well outstayed our welcome. I know. Sorry. Mm, I can chat. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. No, we can chat. Hey, um, you can find Jess on Instagram at? Jess Brady underscore financial advice. Mm. And if you want to get enrolled in her greenhouse, you've got a week to do it. Um, so, And you may have seen some emails because we put it in the email last time or whatever because I just want to get people to um, to look at this. And a bit of a, a, 
a story time, everyone. I'm really good at doing these podcasts and, well, I'd like to think I'm you good are. at doing these podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I just want to like, like Emily Wallace, she's got a first home owner course. John Pigeon's got his property investor course. Jess here has a bit of a overarching financial planning vibe discover your money memoir. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like a money. Yes, you do. Why are you like you? <laughs> What's your story been? How can we learn to not do those habits or how do we learn to lean in? So Jess is more of a, a thing and I just want to bring in other professionals and people who are good at what they do and just use the My Millennial Money as a, a bit of a town square platform because um, I can't do everything and I'll just stick in my lane with a microphone in my face. So hmm. that's kind of why I wanted to promote your stuff. Thank you. And we're very excited to have this conversation where you let me talk about it. You know, I could talk about the greenhouse all bloody day long, which I know you don't want me to, but it's so nice to, um, Glenn, it's so nice to be helping people that I know that I could never have helped before because they could never have come to see me and pay five, eight, ten grand or whatever I used to charge for one-on-one -on -one stuff. It's really exciting and it's super fun and I love it. So thanks for letting me talk about it as well. Yeah, no worries. And just to be clear, everyone, Jess is no longer doing individual advice. So don't write in and say, I want to book a meeting with Jess. She'll just go, if you want me, you can do the greenhouse. Yeah. All right. Toodles, Jess. See you, everyone, next week. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.